today, is it? The unclouded one. Let's go to the first couple of pages of your Bible, if you would. Genesis 1 and 2. I do appreciate that song, that beautiful song, having reference to the tree of life in the second verse. And the other songs Kyle led this morning as well. So the first couple of pages of your Bible will close in a bit on the last couple of pages of your Bible. And we're going to look at this beautiful theme. I hope that it will be helpful to you. There's this, uh, there's this longing within us for something more than what we have. And we try to fill that longing with a lot of stuff, you know. Sometimes that stuff is tangible, it's material. We want to accumulate and possess and own and... And, and, and that doesn't work very well. We, we get more, we have more, we possess more, but it doesn't satisfy that longing. Sometimes we try to fill that void, that longing with experiences, maybe vacations or, I don't know, whatever the bucket list thing might be that you want to do or see in your lifetime. And you get to experience that, maybe some of them perhaps, but that longing is still there. There's still something in you, some kind of void that's there, you know. Sometimes we, we might try to fulfill it with earthly relationships or, I don't know, you can go a lot of places with that. But whatever that thing is, it doesn't fill the longing. We still feel that, something, that something's missing, you know. And I think what it is, is, is we want to go back to what we had. Now, you and I didn't have it individually, but human beings had it. We, we want to go back to where we were. We want to go back. We were created we were created to be in the presence of God. We were created to be in Eden, in that beautiful garden. We were created to be there in that place that God made for us. And so we're not there. And so we're searching for that. We're searching for it. There's this longing. So, so I, I would urge you sometimes to identify that, that feeling in you when, you when you just feel like something's missing. Well, there is something missing. And, and I want to suggest to you that I do believe we can be content. We can... We can be fulfilled in this life, but I think there's a sense in which we won't be fully content, fully satisfied until we are back where we once were. Now, in our text in Genesis 2, where we're going to start, it's on my, in my Bible, it's on, it actually is on page 2. And in Genesis 2, we have this description given about this, this tree of life. And I want you to look at the text with me, if you would. I appreciate Sean's reading these three verses. And, and you, you know where this is in the Bible. Of course, you've got the six days of creation in Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, you have a, a closer look at day 6, where God created Adam and Eve. And, and in the middle of that, you've got these you know, curious verses. We typically don't spend a whole lot of time. I think we talk about the tree of knowledge of good and evil more than we do the tree of life. Tree of the knowledge is one that we're supposed to eat of. Tree of life is, is, is there. You know, we don't, I guess we don't really talk that much about it, but I want to show you today for the next few minutes how pervasive this theme is in the Bible. And uh, I didn't know it until so I, I started looking at this more closely. And you may not know it either, but it's all over the place. And there are hints and these, these subtle, I don't know, subtle insinuations about this tree of life and what God is doing and how it kind of ties everything together. I've told you this before, and I'm sure I'll tell you again, that one of the things that strengthens my faith daily and, and, and just keeps drawing me back into this, what it means to be a Christian is, is this story, is this narrative, this biblical narrative of what God is doing from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. 
as nobody has been able, I've read a lot of stuff on this, as you may have as well, but nobody's been able to convince me that this Bible just happened. This the product of, of a bunch of people just writing stuff down without any kind of divine supernatural guidance. I just don't think, that's, I don't think that could have happened. This is a beautiful story, and the tree of life kind of frames that story, having its appearance in Genesis 2, and then once again, we're brought back to it in Revelation 21 and 22. And it just frames this whole narrative, which is faith building and faith strengthening. And it'll, it'll give you some hope, I hope. It'll give you a, it'll give you a reason to, to go on and a reason to hope for what God has waiting on you if you're one of his people. So um, I'm looking forward to talking with you about this for the next few minutes. So Genesis 1, God made everything and it was good. Genesis 2, he describes it a little bit more about this garden. And in the middle of that garden, there are these, there are these trees. And so he refers to two of them specifically. As Sean read to us a moment ago in Genesis 2, 9, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there as well. God instructed them that they could eat of any tree in the garden with the exception of that one tree. And you know how the story goes. But I want you to notice um, a little bit more about what he says there in Genesis 2 about the tree of life and what it signifies. I mean, what is the tree of life? What is that? Is it a metaphor? Is it a, you know, what, what does it mean? And I think it is metaphorical. I think it was physical, but I think it's also metaphorical in that it points to something beyond itself. Genesis 2, he planted this garden, verse 8, in the east. I'll refer back to that, I hope, in a few minutes. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, and, and, and then you go on and you read, like go and read, follow along with me. I want to read a couple of verses beyond where, where Sean read for us. Genesis 2, verse 10, look at this. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. You got this, you got this, this you know, this river flowing out of Eden. Name of the first is Pishon and so on. There's this gold in verse 11. The gold, verse 12, of the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there, verse 12. And he goes on talks about this other river, Gihon, and the whole land of Cush. The third river is Tigris in verse 14. The fourth river is the Euphrates. The last two, of course, we're very familiar with. Look at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I just want you to notice one thing. I put this word on the screen here. If you're following on the back of the bulletin, you'll notice blanks here. The first word is provision. That's what the tree of life signifies here. It signifies provision, and it signifies that God is the giver of life. Um, this, this tree of life represents, in a sense, God, in, in, in God providing us what we need. Eden, the Garden of Eden has everything that we ever needed. It is this perfect place of intimacy with God. We have this relationship with God that's it's unfettered. It is, it's, it's not mitigated by our brokenness, by our sinfulness. We have this relationship with God that is just beautiful. And the tree of life signifies that, that we can live eternally in the presence of God with all of our provisions, everything that we ever could hope or dream for, everything that we ever needed. That's what the tree of life means. It is the presence of God, our intimacy and our presence with God and God providing us everything that we need. So you got this idea of provision there. That's why in the tree of life in this paragraph, in this section of Genesis 2, is surrounded by the, the river of life that, that gives us everything that we need. So you got water and you got the fruit of the tree. So you got the tree of life, that is food. You got the water from the river, that is water. So you got food and water signifying God gives us everything that we need. He sustains us, all right? And then you got the gold and the beautiful gems that are mentioned there as well in the text signifying beauty. Okay, so this is the first mention. We don't learn a whole lot more about it then. 
Now, Mervyn referred to this in his comments just prior to the Lord's Supper, and I appreciated what he had to say. In Genesis 3, you know the, how the story goes. God told him you can eat of any tree in the garden except for one, and uh, they promptly disobeyed that in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve ate of that one tree that they couldn't have, and as a result of that, we've got this section at the end of Genesis 3. Now, notice this with me, okay? Genesis 3, 22, let's read it. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing the good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was, he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what you've got here in Genesis 3, and I want you to see how this helps us understand, in a way, this Bible story. You've got intimacy with God in Genesis 2, and now you've got this, this um, exile from the presence of God as a result of what we did. And that is the next step in the Bible story, right? And it's signified by this tree of life. He says that lest he take, hand and take his hand and eat of it and live forever, he, he does something interesting. A couple of words here. I want to mention this to you because I think it will help you. In verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. This is very strong language. In fact, if you're using a different translation from mine, if you're using the NIV, some of you may have that on your phone or tablet or in a traditional form. You've got a different word there, don't you? Therefore, the Lord God banished him. Uh, ESV puts it a little more, more weakly here. The, the Lord God sent him out. Well, sent him out is good, but this word, this verb is stronger than that. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. So it's a, it's a pretty strong word there. In fact, it's used when uh, Abraham sent Ishmael away after, if you remember that story from later on in Genesis, Abraham sent Ishmael away. In other words, he kicked him out. It was an ugly scene. He removed him from his presence. You're not going to be a part of my family anymore. So this is strong language here. Also, Leviticus 16, if you remember the Day of Atonement when it's described a few books after this one, they take this goat. We call it the scapegoat. <clears throat> and they would put his, the priest, the high priest would put his hands on the head of that goat confess all the sins of the people, and then he would banish it into the wilderness. Same word. That's interesting, isn't it? Confess all the sins on the head of this goat, kind of weird, but, and then he would kick him out. You can't be close to the temple. You can't be, be close to the tabernacle. You're banished. So this, this kind of language here, God banished Adam and Eve from the presence of the tree of life. Now, one more thing. In verse 24, I think it, it's, this is a different verb here, but the ESV puts it here, he drove out the man. Well, that carries, carries with it a little bit, a little bit more em, em, emphasis, doesn't he? He drove out the man. So, and that, that also is a strong word that's used, translated sometimes um, to get rid of. Uh, what I want you to see here is when God is, is talking about what he's going to do here as a result of sin, he's got this tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden, and he says... Now, we don't understand all the implications of this, I know, but he says, Adam and Eve, you need to get out. You are kicked out. You're banished. He drives them out of the Garden of Eden. And, and he puts this cherubim 
to protect the tree of life. This cherubim, this angelic, fiery creature. We don't know exactly, you know, what he looked like. Or cherubim is, is plural. Um, what, what they looked like. These, these, but, but we do know it would have been pretty scary. And nobody would have gotten past them to get to the Garden of Eden. To get to the tree of life. So you see this? So, so here, what you got? You got the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And, and then phase two of this progression is you got the tree of life still in the Garden of Eden, but protected and, and signifying the fact that you and I have been exiled from God. We've been banished. We're, we're, not, we're not with him anymore. And so from Genesis 3 all the way until now and beyond our day and time until we get to Revelation in just a minute, we'll look at it. But we, we're still in that state. We're, we're banished from God. All right? we're, we're not with him like we were then. And that's that longing that we have in us. We're not in the garden. We don't have access to the tree of life, which signifies the, the intimacy, the intimate presence of God. So you see this? This is the Bible story. This is, how, this is how it progresses. Now, a third thing. This one's more subtle. All right, I want you to stay with me. This is not, this is not quite as clear, I think, as the first two, but it's nonetheless, nonetheless uh, legitimate and very, very important for you to get this. So, what you have here is presence with God in Genesis 2, banished from God in Genesis 3, and that's, that's ongoing. But, but of course, you know that's not the end of the story. I mean, if the story ended in Genesis 3, it would be a pretty miserable bunch because, I mean, that's it. We're, we're banished from God. We have no hope. We're going to live eternally outside of the presence of God. So what are we going to do? We're hopeless, helpless, all that. That's not the end of the story, though. The story doesn't stop in Genesis 3. It goes on. And what you have here is God coming in various ways to his people to bring them back to him, right? <coughs> and so you've got this, this, um, this story that goes on. God calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make of you a great nation and I'm going to... I'm going to use you to bless all the nations of the earth. All the earth is going to be blessed because of you, Abraham, because of your descendants. And then God works through the family of Abraham. And you move on as we continue this Bible story. And we get to the, the story of Exodus. And we read there about how God gave his law. And part of his law in, in helping his people to understand what his nature is like and how they can dwell in, in some sort of mediated fellowship with him. God gives them instructions about building this tabernacle, right? You've heard of the tabernacle. That was the portable structure that God told them to build. And in that tabernacle, God would dwell symbolically. And so they would construct that tabernacle. It would have two main rooms. It would have the holy place. And then it would have the inner sanctum, the most holy place. And in that tabernacle is where, once they constructed it, God, if you read this in, in Exodus and Leviticus, you'll, you'll see this, but God descended. I mean, smoke and fire and all this. God descended and, and like there he was, this God dwelling there, right? It's pretty neat. Now, Here's what you may not, some of you, you know all that right there, but you may not know this. Did you know that the tabernacle God told them to build, he gave them these minute, these just intricate instructions about how it is to be built out of these elements and these dimensions and how you do it, how you move it, all this. That that tabernacle has all sorts of echoes of Eden in it. This is important for, for you to understand the story here. The tabernacle has all sorts of hints 
all sorts of echoes of Eden. Now, when you read about how God told them to build the tabernacle, what you're going to see is that what he's doing in so many ways is he's helping them to understand that Eden is not done. We're not done with that kind of fellowship with God. He's not done with us. He's not happy when we're away from him. And so he constructs the tabernacle and it's got all of these, these pieces of furniture. It's got these decorations and a lot of them have echoes of what he had in Eden. I'm going to point out just a couple of them. Okay. Again, I want to mention a couple of things. I'll move a little bit quickly through some of this. You may want to go back and think about this on your own a little bit later. Maybe take some notes and go back and read some of these texts I'm going to, I'm going to point out. But, but what you've got here is you've got several hints here. You've got, for example, the reference. I kind of skimmed over it in Genesis 3. But you've got this, this, um, this cherubim garden, guarding this tree of life. And it, and it faces toward the east or it's in the east. The tabernacle, when it was constructed, was always to face toward the east. You've got things like some of these words. You remember back in Genesis 2.15, I think I may have read a little bit of this a second ago. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So Adam, Adam and Eve were put there to work the garden and to keep it. Do you know... Where else in the Bible you have those two verbs often used in conjunction with one another when God is talking about working and keeping something? You know where that might be? Talking about the tabernacle. The priests were, were put in charge of the tabernacle to do what, you know? To work it and keep it. Same kind of language. That's not coincidental. It's not just by chance. You got God saying... Adam and Eve, here's the Garden of Eden. You are to work it and keep it. And then later, you've got the tabernacle facing toward the east. The Garden of Eden was in the east. You've got, um, you've got Adam and Eve being, I mean, uh, you've got the priest in the tabernacle being told to work it and keep it. Same verbs put together in conjunction with one another. And what's he doing? He's giving us echoes of Eden. This is what God is doing. He's creating the tabernacle, which is where God dwells. God lived in Eden, and now he's symbolically dwelling in the tabernacle, facing toward the east, the priest working and keeping the tabernacle, just as Adam and Eve had been told to do in Eden, but they failed because they gave in and they disobeyed God. But, oh yeah, one more thing, and then I'll get to the butt part. You remember the, the cherubim thing? The cherubim? God put them there to guard the way to the tree of life, which signifies the presence of God, so you can't get to the presence of God because you got the cherubim. Well, in the tabernacle, you also had cherubim. You had these angelic creatures who were guarding the most holy place. You could not come into the most holy place because that's where God was. The cherubim are guarding it. And you got that veil, that curtain, that big curtain signifying you don't come into the holy of holies where God is. All right. But here's the one I'm particularly interested in. And that is the golden lampstand. The golden lampstand was to be in the tabernacle. And it is, I hope this image can help you see it a little bit. Though we're not sure exactly what it looked like. We do have pretty good descriptions in Exodus 25, 31 through 40. 
But here are a couple of things that are interesting about it. One, it was made of gold. You remember back in Genesis 2 when we were reading about that, that, that land by, by the water, by the river that flowed from Eden. You had, it was in the land where there was a lot of gold. And then you've also got that it, is, it consists of these branches. This, this thing is to be constructed so it looks like a tree. You've got these branches going up. And it, those little things there, if you can see them, that are going up the branches are, are supposed to look like almond blossoms. And almost every scholar studying this description in Exodus 25 believes that this golden lampstand is to be a is to be a replica of the, of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And so what you've got here is God constructing the tabernacle facing toward the east with a cherubim garden access to the, to the presence of God and the, the, the curtain signifying that we can't get to where God is because we're messed up, you know, we're broken. And you've got the, the priest working and keeping it just like Adam and Eve were to work and keep the Garden of Eden. And then you've got this golden lampstand which is constructed to look like a tree and it has echoes of Genesis 2 where the tree of life. You see what, you see what this might, might mean? That God is helping his people to see I'm not done with this yet. I'm not done with you. Yes, you are banished from my presence now, but I want to come to you. I want to be with you. I want you to be with me. I, I'm, I'm, the access must be mediated because you are sinful people and you cannot be in my presence as you are. But I want to, I want to come to you. And so all those sacrifices and all the kosher diet and all the holy days and all the stuff in the Old Testament... These are ways for God to help them see. I want you to be with me. But you're not yet ready fully to be with me because you're still in your sin. And all these sacrifices, all these, all these minutiae, you know, all, all those things cannot, cannot bring you back to where I am. So you've got this, this idea here of anticipation, the Garden of Eden, the replica in the tabernacle, God's presence, which we want to be with him. We want to come close to God, but we're afraid to because we know we're, we're not worthy to be there. So the story of the Bible in, in, respect, in one respect is we're banished from God's presence. God comes to us and he wants to be with us, but there's a barrier there. There's, there's something there keeping us from being with God. We want to access the tree of life again but we cannot. We cannot as we are. Anticipation. I mean, the story's about this anticipation. All right, we're going to fast forward now to the last couple of chapters. So I'd like for you to, we'll pretty much, we'll pretty much stay there. If you want to go, just turn to the end of the Bible and turn back a couple of pages. You'll be there. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. We're going to talk about this last idea in the new Jerusalem. So John is getting a glimpse. Is this any, I mean, this just this blows my mind because I just love the story. This is written 1,600 years after, um, I mean, after the first first book of the Bible was was written. You're talking about uh, you're talking about a long span of time where the story of God is being told. We come to the very end of it, and Revelation is where it ought to be. It ought to be at the end of your Bible because it frames the story. You got Genesis one and two. And then you got Revelation 21 and 22, this story. And in Revelation 21 and 22, what we see here 
is that John gets this glimpse of what he calls the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will, will be with them as their God. Do you see this language here in this great? What he's saying, the dwelling place of God is with, with us, with human beings. God wants to be with us. That's the whole story of the Bible. We were with him in Genesis 2. We messed up in Genesis 3 and got kicked out. We've got anticipation throughout the Bible of what it's going to be like when the sin problem is finally taken care of once and for all. And we get to come back and the dwelling place of God is with us. And, and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Everything that's keeping us away from him will be obliterated. In, look in Revelation 21, 6. And he said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. You remember the river that flowed out of the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2? And this language here is echoing what, what we started with at the very first part of, of Genesis. Look in Revelation 22.1. We'll skip around just a bit, but we'll stay here in these two chapters. Look at Revelation 22.1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. There it is, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you've got this tree of life, the water of life that's flowing from the throne of God, from the presence of God, and it's watering the tree of life. See, what you've got is Genesis 2, the river that flowed out of Eden, and you've got the tree of life that's there. You see what John is doing? He's seeing this great vision, new Jerusalem, the new heaven and new earth, and the water of life is there, and the tree of life is there. And this, this, you know, the significance of this is just, is, is mind-boggling. Mind um, you've got also in, Revel, in, um, in Revelation 21, 19, and 20, let me just mention this briefly, this, you could do a lot more with this, but Revelation 21, 19, and 20. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire. And read through all those elements, those, those gems, those jewels there. And, and the, the thing that's interesting about that is it's connected. You may write this down, look at it on your own time. But Ezekiel 28, 13, Ezekiel 28, 13, it's looking back to Eden. And it's talking about all these precious jewels that are there. All right, let me, let me, this is, this is, there's so, this is so rich and there, there are a hundred of these things I'm trying to give you a sample of, but these jewels that are mentioned in Revelation 21 as being in the new heavens and new earth, they're mentioned in Ezekiel 28, 13 of being present in Eden. They're mentioned in the book of Exodus as being present on the, the high priest breastplate, this, 
this robe that he would wear when he went into the presence of God. So what I'm wanting you to, to, to connect here is that in Eden, according to Ezekiel 28, you had these precious jewels that were also present on the, on the uh, robe of the high priest, and then you also have them present in the new heaven and new earth with the tree of life and the water of life. Now, if you're getting confused, here's, here's the foundation. Here's, here's, the, here's the main point. I'm just mentioning a few of them. They're all over the place, and I'm amazed by this, but the, the main point is when John sees this new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21 and 22, there are all sorts of verbal and, uh, and metaphorical and, and, and pictorial references back to Eden. What John is seeing is God is going to be with us again like he was then. That's what John is seeing, the water of life, the tree of life, the gold, the, the precious gems, all this, all this stuff. But I want to I mention, oh yeah, Revelation 21, 16 also says, that it has this cube shape. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. He measured and told how big it is. It's shaped like a cube. So he's, he's looking at this new heaven and new earth. It's shaped like a cube. You know, else was a, you know else, what else was a perfect cube? The most holy place of the tabernacle was a perfect cube. These echoes here all over the place. This signifies this is where God is. This is where God is dwells and God is inviting us back to be with him. Now I want to close by just saying a couple things to us as, as a church, as Christians, as people who want to be with God, what this means. Revelation 21 and 22, when John sees this, he is saying the story is coming true. What happened in Genesis 3 is going to be undone. We messed it up, yes. We were banished from the presence of God, yes. We got the anticipation throughout the Old Testament, but John gets this glimpse of what it's going to be like, and his glimpse gives him this insight into what it's going to be, and what it's going to be is we're going to be invited back into the presence of God that's un that's unfettered. It, it, it won't be limited in the sense that it, is, that it is now. That's why the text says that we will see his face. We will see God. We will be with God again. Can you understand? I don't think we can. But can we begin to think a little bit about what that might be like? Nobody in his or her sinfulness can see the face of God. But when this day comes, when Jesus finally pronounces that final victory over death and sin, you and I will be invited in, ushered into the presence of God like we were in the very beginning. And we will be with him. We will be invited back into his presence. And that's the story of the Bible. You know, in, um, in Revelation twenty two fourteen, 14, I want to look at this briefly as we close Revelation twenty two fourteen, John says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. 
outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Back in Revelation 21 and verse 25, it says that its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And the language is picturesque. But what he's portraying is this idea of there will be full and open access to all of God's people, to the presence of God. In Genesis 3, he put the cherubim there. It's guarded. We cannot access it. In Revelation 21 and 22, God says, come on in. Everybody come in. Everybody come in. No more cherubim guarding the way. No more curtain keeping you out of the holy of holies. No more dietary laws. No more rules and no more of all these things that that we had to have in our sinful state, but Revelation 21 and 22 pictures the day when you, will, you and I will hear the voice of God come into my presence and the gates are open wide night and day, nothing at all to obstruct us from being with God intimately. And that's what we long for. We long for Genesis 1 and 2. We want that. We want Eden again. We want to be there with God again. And the story of the Bible is, as John tells us at the end, is that's what God is doing. He's inviting us back. The tree of life. It signifies the presence of God and the eternal life that God wants to give us. See, the story of the Bible is not one of God thinking of ways that he can keep us out. It's not it at all. I don't know how you view God. God is not a God of who's sitting up there on his throne thinking about new laws he can come up with to keep you out of the kingdom. God is on his throne begging you and me just accept him. And he will open wide the gates and invite you to come into his presence. That's what we long for. That's what we were created for. And there's just absolutely no reason for you and me ever to say no, I don't want that. That's what we want. It's what we need. We were created for that. So why would we ever say, Lord, I don't want to be with you? We'll not find fulfillment in things, in power, sex, alcohol, drugs, relationships. It's not where it is. True contentment is being where God is. That's the story of the Bible. He's inviting us once again to come to the tree of life. If you're not a Christian today, you know, what, what, we're, what we're extending to you is, is what he extended to all of us, and that is his invitation. Also at the end of the, end of the Bible, you know, Revelation 21 and 22, you have the, the beautiful scene there where, where, uh, where Jesus says, come. And so we're, we're just here today extending his invitation. It's not ours, it's his and he says, come, and, and I will give you the water of life, and you can drink freely. Water of life. Uh, the tree of life. He wants you to have access to it. He wants, to, he wants you to eat. He wants you to drink. He wants you to come in and sit down at his table. And he wants to bless you with the kind of uh, existence that he created you to have. If you're ready to, to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you trust in him as your Lord, you confess that you do believe in him, you're turning your life over to him, you signify that in public baptism as your sins are washed away by his blood, by his grace, mercy, and kindness. And you leave here as one who's in fellowship with God, anticipating access to the water of life and the tree of life. Beautiful thing. And we invite you to come to that today. Maybe you need to come home to him today.
You've been away from him. You've been eating the fruit of the trees of the world. He invites you to come back to the tree of life today. Let's stand and sing.